You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. What is open banking? Is it a set of technologies? Is it a type of banking regulation? Or is it some sort of global movement? The answer to all three of these questions is yes. On the Mr. Open Banking podcast, we aim to delve deeper into each of these questions to help our audience understand the different definitions of open banking better. But to do that, we're going to need to build a foundation, a fundamental understanding of what open banking is at its core. As this is the very first episode of Mr. Open Banking, we're going to explore the first question. Is open banking a set of technologies? We're only going to lightly touch on the regulatory side. And if what you really want to hear is the global movement stuff, you'll have to tune in for episode two. Because on this episode, we're going to discuss the technology behind open banking with a particular focus on what the technology lets you do. If you're not a techie, don't worry, we'll do our best to explain things in a simple way. But it's important to understand what open banking is at that basic fundamental level as a way to chart a clear course for the journey to come. On our show today, we have as our guest Chris Michael. Chris is a bit of a rock star in the open banking community. He is the founder of Ozone API, and over the past three and a half years, he's been leading the development of the UK Open Banking Standard, along with the Open Banking Implementation Entity, or OBIE, a standard which is widely considered the most mature implementation of open banking in the world. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. So, although you've been immersed in this world for the last three and a half years, let's start with the basics. In your own words, what is open banking? I would say that open banking, it's a fairly generic construct or concept designed to provide a method by which an authorized third party, like a fintech, can access a customer's online payment account in the same way that a customer can access it themselves. So the the kind of limitations, if you like, are anything that a customer can do in their online channel in terms of reading their information so looking at their balances and transactions, that's called the read operation or the read API. And the second bit of functionality is payment initiation. So anything that a customer can do in their online channel, their mobile app or their banking website to initiate a payment. Okay, a quick review to make sure everyone's got it. Open banking, when you boil it down, is made up of two operations or APIs. The read API, which lets you look at your account information, and the payment API, which lets you move money around. In some places, regulations have even been passed that require banks to create these APIs, like the CMA order in the UK or PSD2 in Europe. More on APIs later, but for now, back to Chris. So the idea is that a customer can do that themselves at the moment, and CMA order and PSD2 is designed to allow authorized third parties to do that on behalf of a customer 
but with the customer's consent. So put simply, it sounds like open banking lets me take third-party apps from these fintechs and hook them into my regular bank accounts, share information between them, right? Absolutely, yes. That's been happening for many years in the UK, America, pretty much everywhere in the world. But that's been happening using something called screen scraping and credential sharing. So typically what has happened in the past or been happening in the past is the customer has given a third-party application their username and password. That third-party application impersonates the customer and logs on to the customer's bank account to access information. Now, obviously that's insecure and, and risky in a number of ways. The first way is that the customer's giving away their credentials and doesn't really know what that third party is accessing. And the second thing is that the bank or the financial institution who provides the account doesn't have a way of really controlling what information the third party is accessing either, nor actually validating whether it is an authorised third party or a fraudster. So there are some inherent risks. Having said that, this has been an established model for many years, at least the last 10 to 15 years. So this is something that customers want. This is something that customers already do today. It's just done in a better, technologically more mature manner. Yeah, absolutely. The examples that you could give where this is offered value before are things like account aggregation or personal financial managers or business accounting packages have quite often accessed your bank account or a customer's bank account to provide these services. Now remember, these services are provided today using the insecure screen scraping method. Replacing that with a secure API, which is really what open banking should be about, that's much better for the customer because the customer doesn't have to give away their password. It's much better for the financial institutions, the banks, and it's much better for the fintechs because it's a more reliable way of connectivity. So overall, it's it's a much better model, but it's entirely dependent on the banks producing good APIs. You've heard a lot of talk about these mysterious APIs, so it's probably worth taking a minute to explain them a little better. The term API stands for Application Programming Interface, and it's as old as software. The actual term API goes all the way back to the first computers in the 60s and 70s, with the first citation of the term being recorded in 1968. In the year 2000, a professor named Roy Fielding published a famous paper, which led to a bit of an API renaissance. But even though the technologies changed, what an API is and what it does has stayed the same. So what do APIs do? Well, they're the glue, the pipes, the bridges that let different pieces of software talk to each other. When your Uber app brings up a Google map or when Netflix plays on your Xbox, That's all made possible by APIs. Today, APIs bind software together in millions of different ways, and banks have actually been using them for decades. What open banking aims to do is standardize these APIs across the industry, laying the foundation for the digital future. So let's bring this down to earth a little bit. These APIs, which are allowing these banking apps to talk to each other and share financial information, offer you all sorts of unique solutions to financial problems you might have, better ways to manage, save, or invest your money. 
let's go back to Chris and explore what some of these solutions might actually look like. Personal finance managers and business accounting packages, but that's not anything new. Open banking or APIs have just made those products better, more reliable, more secure. The really interesting opportunities that we're seeing now are in two areas. Firstly, lending. So we're seeing applications where customers, they want to get a loan rather than sending the lender a copy of their bank statements as a PDF or declaring their income and expenditure. This can now be validated via an API. So the customer can give a a third party access to their bank account securely via an API for a one-off purpose to validate income and expenditure, and that can be then used to generate a credit score to offer a loan. So what that results in is less fraud in lending, more responsible lending, and real-time decision-making. So real-time decision-making, that basically means no more lugging paper around, no more sending email attachments. I just grant access to my banking information, and the next thing you know, they can offer me a loan. Yes, and we're seeing examples of that now in the UK. It's not only offering value to customers, it's offering value to banks and third parties as well. And I think the second innovation we're starting to see is around payments. So a lot of people talk about open banking and open finance as just being the read operation, i.e. accessing data, pulling data out of a banking system for purposes that we've just described. But actually, initiation of payments is really interesting. What we're seeing, and I think this is just, it's really only just starting to take off, it's just the tip of the iceberg, is use cases where a customer can pay a supplier or pay a bill where the customer doesn't have to use a card or manually enter reference numbers, sort codes and account numbers. The third party it could be an, an accounting package if you're paying a supplier, for example, or it could be a government website if you're paying a tax bill. These are the sort of use cases that we're starting to see people looking at now in, in the UK. What it does is it significantly reduces the likelihood of error in terms of you know entering the wrong data. Money is more likely to go to the right account. Also, it significantly helps with reconciliation at the other end because reference numbers and things can be auto-entered and the customer doesn't have to type things in. It sounds like this is similar to what happens when I log into another site using my Facebook ID or Google ID, something like that? It's exactly the same. The basic model of this is something called OAuth. And we've been working in the UK, we've been working with the OpenID Foundation over the last three and a half years, and the OpenID Foundation are the guardians of the OAuth standard. And we've layered on top of that something called OpenID Connect, and then on top of that something called the Financial Grade API Profile or the FAPI Profile. So these are different kind of layers of a specification which provide absolute certainty and security around the, uh, the, the authorization of that API operation. Those were a lot of technical security terms. I think what most people really want to know is, quite simply, is this safe? Do I have control over who has access to my financial data? Yeah, so is that the customer has to authenticate every payment. What's been mandated across Europe is something called strong customer authentication, where the customer has to authenticate with more than one factor. So they can't just use a username and password. They have to use another factor, which could be a one-time password or code sent to a user's mobile phone. It could be biometrics, their face or thumbprint. And using those additional factors means that there's absolute certainty that it is the customer authenticating the payment. 
So there you have it. The open banking basics explained. Let's do a quick recap to make sure we're all on the same page. Open banking, the bare bones version, is about granting authorized parties like fintechs and other service providers access to your bank accounts through software connectors called APIs. There's two main types of APIs for open banking. One to get information about you or your banking activity, and another to move money around using payments. In some places, like the UK, regulations actually require banks to publish these APIs. And finally, are they safe? Is open banking dangerous? The answer is a hard no. It's ultra-secure. In fact, it is far, far safer than the mechanisms being used today to offer open banking-like services. But that's just the dry, techie version. The really amazing thing about open banking, as Chris explained, are the opportunities for innovation that it creates. Even without any technical knowledge, everyone can appreciate seeing all their bank accounts in one place, opening an account without any paper, or getting approved for a loan in minutes. These are things that matter in people's lives, things that open banking is trying to make simpler. But it hasn't been a rosy journey. Getting banks, fintechs, and regulators to agree on technology decisions is not an easy thing to do, let alone incorporating the views of everyday people. Of all the countries in the world, the UK has probably made more progress than anyone. Let's go back to Chris to learn about some of those bumps in the road. The first challenge we had is that the regulations were not particularly clear about what the requirements were. So we had to develop a a standard, a, a specification for a set of requirements that were unknown. Second pain point that we had was that the banks to start with didn't do a very good job of implementing these APIs. And I think that's because, you know, they were doing something new. This is not easy to build open APIs on top of systems which are previously being closed. And so we've seen all of the banks go through a learning curve, either with their own internal teams or with their vendors and systems integrators. Everyone's gone through a learning curve. And what we've got now in the UK is, as you mentioned earlier, a mature standard, but also we've got a lot of maturity now out there in the technology vendors that can enable this. Well, it's certainly true that all this hard work is paying off. In a recent Endigit report, the UK received a perfect score, 100 out of 100, for open banking standard maturity relative to the rest of the world. Let's drill down on that a bit. What is it about your standard that makes it a strong standard? So I think the first thing is that we've gone through several, three major iterations and we're continuing to iterate the standard. We have a very tight governance process. But I think the other key thing or another key thing is that we proved the standard by actually building it and getting lots of banks to build to it. And what we've worked out along the way is that you need more than just technical specifications. So what we've done is refined the standard, clarified lots of issues, but it's been based on people actually building things and working out that what they built wasn't quite good enough. We've also done a couple of other things along the way as well. So built not just a specification, but in the standard, we've built some customer experience guidelines. But the the customer experience guidelines really set out how the API should work from an end customer point of view, how they give consent to a third party, how they authenticate with their bank and authorize whether it's account information or payment, how you should talk to a customer in an open banking sort of consent journey. So it sounds like you tried to make sure that the customer experience was consistent 
no matter which bank I go to or which fintech I go to, the open banking experience is similar and makes me feel safe. Yes. And I think there were some key principles there that we wanted consistency. So, you know, the first principle, which is designed to really reduce the pain points that we've had in around screen scraping. The first was a principle about not sharing credentials. The second thing is that the customer is authenticating with the bank using the same method of authentication that they are used to. And the best example of that is mobile app authentication. And the third principle was reducing friction. So, you know, some of the banks who didn't want to do this introduced additional screens. So when you are authenticating with your bank, some of the banks would put a few additional screens saying to the customer, are you absolutely sure you want to do this? That can be quite damaging. As we all know, you know, if you put additional steps in an online process, you get drop off. Putting that principle around no unnecessary friction has been absolutely key. And what we've seen over the past year, I would say, is that the banks have made a marked effort, certainly in the UK, around creating a much better customer experience for open banking. And that was because of all of this stuff we put into these customer experience guidelines. What you just heard was a checklist for how to make a great open banking standard. Let's go over Chris's advice one more time. Make sure your standard is iterative, which means lots of versions. Get banks on board and building to the standard early. Make sure people don't have to share their passwords and use security tools that they already know. Finally, invest in strong customer experience guidelines that ensure a clean, consistent, and friction-free experience across all providers. And the best part? Anyone can reuse the UK standard as they see fit, completely for free. That's what makes it an open standard. A standard anyone can use, but no one owns, as in open source. And that's also what the open in open banking means. Here's Chris on reusing the UK standard. One of the things that we did right at the start as well is made sure this is an open standard. So it's entirely open, open source. Um, anyone can take this standard, can fork it either for another market to be the, the standard for that market or take it and use it for their own internal purposes if they just want to produce some APIs. And the customer experience guidelines and those elements, what I would say is obviously they're based on the UK standards. So, you know, they're in English and it may be that in a particular market you want to have them in Portuguese or Russian or something. So what I would say there is that you might want to take some of those specifications or some elements of those standard and localize them for a specific market. But, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't start from scratch. Beyond the standard, what other advice would you give to others around the world trying to implement open banking? The differences you've got around the world are there are different drivers for open banking. So in some markets, you're seeing almost zero regulatory driver. There might be some regulatory framework around who can provide financial services, but typically there is. But there's there's no kind of regulatory driver, the regulators aren't stepping in and saying all the banks have to implement this. Whereas in other markets, they're looking to follow more of the UK market, which is quite prescriptive. But what I would say is that firstly, to regulators, you could learn from some of the challenges we've had with uh, CMA Order and PSD2 by being quite clear about what you want to get out of open banking. Why do you want to do it in a particular market? Why would a regulator want banks in the market to, to implement open banking or a market to implement open banking? 
what is the expected customer benefit, both personal and business customers, for doing this? And over what time frame do you want to see that benefit and how are you going to measure it? If you start with that premise, it's much easier to get outcomes which actually work for the market. And that should all be done and agreed before you start looking at how you implement a a specification or a standard and before you create a sort of regulatory framework. But then what I would say to banks is actually if there is no regulatory driver yet or there's a regulation in draft, I would say to banks not to wait until you're told what to do because if you wait till you're told what to do from the regulators, it's more likely to be sort of downside. It's going to be cost that you have to do from a compliance point of view and you will approach this from a compliance mindset, not from a commercial mindset. And the biggest learning I think we've got from the UK, or the most significant thing I think, is what we've seen is that banks and fintechs, when they started this three years ago, they were very much looking at this as a competition thing. So fintechs were looking to come in and compete and offer services that competed with the services that banks offered. What we're now seeing is that fintechs and banks are collaborating and looking to offer new products to the market in collaboration, in in partnership. And those new services offer significant value. And it's also an easier conversation to have. So that model, banks have moved from looking at this as a compliance project to looking at this as a commercial product. I would say that if banks look at APIs or open banking as a way of offering a new channel, an API channel to the market where they can partner with fintechs to offer new services, then it's a much more interesting conversation. And if banks get on the front foot and start looking at that, then I would say that's going to be a better thing. Because at the end of the day, open banking is here now and it's coming and it's it's not going away. Another checklist, this time for banks and regulators. First, to regulators. Chris suggests being clear about your goals, asking why you're doing this and how you're going to measure success. Get this stuff worked out before you worry about technology. And as for banks, Chris says, don't wait, begin today. If you wait for regulation, you will risk approaching open banking as another painful compliance project, when in fact, it should be approached more like a new product. In short, banks must learn to see open banking not as a threat, but rather as an opportunity. Chris explains. What we've seen over the last year or so is a number of use cases where banks and fintechs can work together to offer new services to the market. And if the better API that the banks got, the better partnership and the more use cases they can enable. Examples are credit scoring, working with a a fintech who can get consent from a customer to access a bank account to validate income and expenditure to enable a real-time decision on lending. That's one example where the bank can offer loans to customers who don't bank with them. So the really interesting model is the fintech then partnering with one or more of the banks to offer that to all the bank's customers. Because if the fintech tried to go out and get customers themselves, that would be very expensive and it would take the fintech years. If the bank tried to develop that application themselves, it would take them years. If you've got one fintech who's built that, that could be offered to all of the big banks and all of the big banks could offer that to all of their customers. And you get 
customer benefit for a very large number of people very quickly. That's a really interesting use case. And that kind of network effect seems to apply to all the use cases that you build around open banking. Well, I think it certainly can, yes. And I think the interesting opportunity, which we haven't really seen yet, but where I think there's a bigger network effect is around payments. That's something where I think we're going to start to see a growth. But the point of that is that not all of the benefits will come through the regulatory requirements of those APIs. So what we're starting to see now is banks interested in layering additional functionality on top, or we call it premium APIs, on top of the regulatory PSD2, if you like, API. So the premium API space is interesting. So banks looking at, okay, they've built this infrastructure, they've built to a regulatory requirement, but they've now got something that they can commercialize in two ways. They can commercialize it by offering the the regulatory APIs, which they have to do for free, but partnering with fintechs to offer services that the services that the bank can benefit from, and I mentioned lending. But you've also got an opportunity for banks to, to use the same infrastructure to provide a richer experience that they can actually charge the market for. So it goes above and beyond the regulatory requirement And that premium API space is really interesting. And I think payments is where the premium API space could could offer a really good revenue opportunity for banks. You've recommended that banks start to think of open banking as an opportunity. What are the biggest challenges you've seen in getting big banks to start thinking that way? The way that large banks banks are structured in silos, you know, and if the banks approach this as a compliance project, they've got a sort of compliance-led silo looking at open banking. And in fact, even within that, they'll have a compliance team, they'll have a, an architecture team, they'll have an implementation team, a customer experience team. You have all of these different teams and it, it's quite inefficient and they're all looking at it as a, as a compliance project. Whereas what you're starting to see now is if the banks are looking to commercialize it, they need to kind of have a product team that's looking at open banking as a channel. You've spoken at length about the opportunities presented by open banking. Is there a threat to banks who don't adopt open banking? There are two threats, I think. There's a regulatory threat. So if banks don't adopt open banking, I mean, there are some get-out-of-jail-free cards in, in the regulations in Europe. But at you know, at some stage, the regulators are going to expect banks to implement APIs. And why do I say that? Well, because if you've got proof points in other markets where having these APIs drives customer value, and what the regulators want to see is customer value and customer benefit, then if that's not being delivered in a market, then there's a good risk the regulators will come in and ask the the bank to do it. The other risk, which is probably what I think banks should be more concerned about is the commercial risk. So if customers expect these experiences, which can only be delivered through an API channel, if that's what customers want and expect, if your bank doesn't deliver that service because they don't have the API, then customers might stop using your bank. And you think it's likely that customers will start to make that same decision about banks that don't support open banking? Yes, but I don't think it's going to be because the customer cares about open banking itself. It will be because the customer cares about the product or service that works because of open banking. Chris, where can our listeners find out more about you, your work at the OBIE and Ozone API? 
So probably the easiest way to get in touch with us is through our website, ozoneapi.com. We can either put you in touch with the OBIE or you can talk to us about partnering to offer the Ozone API to banks and markets anywhere in the world. Thank you very much, Chris, for sharing your knowledge with us today. And it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. An insider's view into the technology behind open banking. Remember, at its core, open banking is about the development of a standard, a common way for banks and other companies to securely share your financial data. According to Chris, to make this happen, you need a strong, fairly prescriptive standard that you continue to iterate and improve upon. You need to make it an open standard, as in open source, so everyone can use it and no one owns it. Make sure you reduce risk by getting rid of password sharing and screen scraping, but also make sure that you reduce friction and make the customer experience consistent and clear, setting the stage for increased innovation. If you're a regulator, think about your goals up front. If you're a bank, think beyond compliance. Break down those internal silos and begin thinking of open banking more like you would a new channel or product, an opportunity to build something new and different, and hopefully better, both for the banks and their customers. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.